Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello, hello, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Rapid Fire Conference on Investigative Interviewing. Um, I hope it all goes well. I'm all by myself today, but um, so I've got no one helping in the background. I've got no co-host, so it's been a while that I've done um, a solo massive event like this. But I'm very, very pleased to have you all on board. There's already quite a few of you watching, and um, more, more will be joining soon. Please tell me who you are in the comments, wherever you're watching this, whether you're on YouTube, on um, LinkedIn, or on Facebook. Please just put into the comments um, who you are, where you're working, or you know where you're where you're basically texting in from, where you're watching from, what your role is, whatever is relevant. So this is also a networking event because I've noticed in these kind of events, I'm you know when I'm watching the, the comments and reading through, people ask questions, and then somebody else from somewhere completely across the globe, globe might answer them. So this is an ex excellent networking opportunity for you guys as well. So please make use of that. Tell me who you are, tell me where you are, and um, let's see you know where everybody else is from. So I'm very pleased to have you. Um, something I'd like to tell you. I'm going to be putting things into the comments as well. Actually, um, what would be good for you guys to do is to, let me just close the other browser, is to um, start a document. Just open up a Google Doc or Word document on the site. I'm going to be posting links on into the comments section. So underneath the video where you're watching this, there's going to be quite a few links with resources for you, you know, links to books, links to organizations that are relevant. And um, I thought rather than you know showing a link on the screen, which you're not going to be able to scribble down without mistakes, it's easy if I put them into the comments and then you can actually um, just keep that document. I don't want you to go off and you know start look, you know, leave, leave the website where you're watching this and, and do something else. I really want you to um, to listen to, to what's going on here, get the most of it out of it. But then please afterwards you'll you know keep that document and just go click through the links and go and have a look and see what's what they've got to offer you and what I found for you there. So start a Word document or a Google Doc or whatever you're using, a text document on the side. Just copy the links in that I'm putting into the comments for you. I've got, um, oh my God, I've got so many people watching. Um, so it's going to be really important. I'm going, I do, I'm going to show this banner. If you've got a question that you would like me to um, answer, read out and answer or try to answer because I'm not, I'm not delivering the training myself today, please start it with a Q. So there's going to be lots of comments in there. And like I said, I do want you to comment a lot and help each other, uh, give each other advice, network, whatever you want to be doing in the comments. So use as a networking session as if you were at a real, well, it is a real conference, but as uh, as if you were at, a, at a, an in-person conference. And um, so if there's something that, that I need to keep my eye on, please start it with a queue, then it'll be easier for me to pick it out. And um, then hopefully I can answer it as well. Um, so this is the other one I'd like to put in there. So if you register for this conference, uh, you might be thinking, why do I need to register? I'm already here. But if you haven't registered yet, then I can't send you the, um, the replay links. I can't give you a certificate of attendance. And also I can't um, send you the discounted ebook link. So everyone, um, actually was everybody, was anyone from you um, at the first rapid fire conference, that one was on behavioral science and policing. That was in April now, I think. If anyone was there, um, just put it into comments saying that you were there. What um, you were offered an ebook by me afterwards, and the ebook was the transcript of all the sessions of all the trainers. So it's something for you to take home. 
because you know you come to a conference you listen to something it makes complete sense but then you forget bits of it but with the ebook you actually have every word that was said you've got links to the resources that were mentioned and you've got links to the actual speakers and contact details to the speakers so i'm, I'm doing the same again um this time i'm also going to offer you um an, an ebook with all the transcripts uh it's going to be two dollars cheaper if you if you are a subscriber to my email list i've got this free police science doctor email list and um if you join, if you register for the conference, you're automatically added um, as a subscriber. And you automatically get the ebook for nine dollars ninety nine instead of eleven ninety nine. So it's still very small, uh, very small price. But um, let me just show you that here. So this is what the ebook looks like, and uh, let me just remove that so you can you can see it properly. Um, okay, hope, I hope there's so many comments. I hope it will go well with the questions. I don't know if I'm going to be able to quickly enough pick up all the questions. So forgive me if I don't answer your question um, during this live event. Um, right. Um, if you don't, if you do want the ebook, um, just completing that, if you do want the ebook, but you don't want to join the, the email list and you don't need a certificate of attendance, that's fine. I'm putting the link to the full price ebook in here now. So you should have that on your um, platform now. And um, so that's in terms of housekeeping. So please be very active in the comments. Um, it also helps other people on the platforms that you are on to see that this, there's an event going on at the moment that's, um, that's drawing attention and maybe it's relevant to them as well. And please help each other out and form connections. Um, that would be great to see. And if you, know, if, if you made a fantastic connection, if you found someone to work with, um, please let me know. It'll be, it'll be a great story for me to hear. Now, so just briefly, who am I? Why am I talking to you? So you can see my name here. Nobody can pronounce it properly. This is how it's pronounced, Suzanne Knabe-Nicole. So um, I'm an investigative psychologist. I um, have a German accent. I've been in the UK all my adult life. And um, I studied investigative psychology and I have been working for policing in the UK for over 10 years um, until last year. A number of roles, all non-sworn um, civilian roles. I was in one uniformed role um, initially as a police community support officer when I was working in London and the others were more behind the scenes. So um, I'm very much a practitioner. I've got the academic qualification as well. And that's how I sort of got into, into doing this website. So I found it very frustrating that I was reading fantastic research about how something is done best and that nobody was really telling the practitioners, you know. So that's why I started a police science doctor. I take academic research, I turn it into a video, I turn it into something very palatable, you know, very consumable, and I put it out to you for, um, you know, for it's free videos, free podcasts, and free transcripts. And... Um, I just felt that there was nobody really doing that. So there are great organizations that are making research more accessible by sharing articles. But I think those articles are not very pleasant to read. Um, you know, anyone who says anyone ever read academic articles, you know, the way they're written is pretty dry. It's very boring. You have to go through a lot of words to actually distill, you know, what is the actual knowledge that's in there. And, but I do that for you with, with what I do, basically. And every Tuesday, I email, I send out an email to the email list. So everybody who's subscribed, there's about 2,000 people on that list at the moment. Um, each of them get an email from me on a Tuesday. And that e Tuesday email is the police science snippets. Oh, and my banner has disappeared. My beautiful and professional looking banner there you go so um every tuesday i send out the police science snippets and these are three pieces of research that i found by you know by going through academic papers that i think will be relevant and actionable so i'm not interested in sharing theoretical stuff with you or comparisons of um 
one uh, one survey or one assessment to the other that you know the academics need to know that and they're sharing it amongst themselves and that's fine what i want to do is i want to find the best that should be shared with you and um I, I email them out to you on a tuesday so if you want to receive that that's one of the perks you get as a subscriber if you don't like being a subscriber you can unsubscribe at any time that's absolutely fine. Just go to policesciencedoctor.com and uh, put your details into the form and you'll be a subscriber automatically. Or you register using that link that I've put in there and uh, you'll also get your certificate of attendance. Okay, so um, why did I set up this conference? Now, investigative, I've prepared some really nice stuff here, so let me just uh, read that out a little bit. Um, investigative interviewing is one of the main evidence collection tools that police and law enforcement have at their hands. So You've got investigative interviewing. The other main collection tool is forensic evidence, you know, DNA, fingerprints, CCTV, and data, for example. Um, that is very, very hard data-driven evidence. The interviewing evidence is completely, 100% influenced by psychology. Now, how is that knowledge about the psychology getting to the practitioner? I mentioned earlier, it's not getting to the practitioner enough. So, um, that it, it never gets to the interviewers or doesn't get to them often enough. But the training courses that you get as an interviewer are very infrequent and, you know, police don't sign up to them enough because of, you know, the, the obstruction time and everything. I mean, I was an investigator. I had the um, advanced suspect interviewing course, advanced witness interviewing course, but there was once and that was it. There were no refreshers, nothing. And nobody was really interested in whether I was keeping up my qualification or not. Um, I'm actually developing courses with two or three of the four speakers today. And uh, that is because um, what they have to teach is so effective and so essential that I don't want to wait around for police organizations to realize that you, you guys need this, okay? So we're going to offer it on the Police Science Doctor Academy instead. And um, actually one of them is launching today. I will announce that later. And um, for now, I've got these four amazing training sessions for you. Um, I hope that you enjoy them. And remember to um, keep talking to each other and in the links, remember to, in the comments, remember to copy down, copy out the links that I give you and um, just hopefully you'll have a good time. So I'd like to um, now, before I get to the first session, just say a big thank you to my first sponsor. It's my media partner, Policing Insight. Now, um, Policing Insight are saying the following. Our content covers the full width of policing criminal justice topics, including policy, practice, crime and technology via articles, reports, and a valuable media monitor service, a searchable database of news, analysis, opinion, and reports from national, local, and specialist press, as well as all the key policing criminal justice organizations. Our readers and contributors reflect the necessary collaborations between police and criminal justice organizations, the third sector, industry, and academia to find progressive solutions to the significant challenges facing policing criminal justice. So I'm I'm just going to um, put this link here into the comments. And you may have seen that um, two of the speakers today, Professor Becky Milne and Professor Lawrence Allison, actually published articles um, in line with what they're going to speak about in Policing Insight in the run-up to this um, conference. And that was really great. Um, I'm going to get to the first speaker now. So first of all, by the way, I just want to um, briefly apologize I advertised this conference as 10-minute um, training sessions, and that was my intention. A good thing um, when, uh, when you get academics going and experts going about talking about their topic of expertise is they become very passionate and they've got so much to share and I completely get it. So the session, three of the sessions are actually a bit longer than, um, than the 10 minutes intended. I hope you don't mind. Um, I'd, it was just too valuable to cut things out. It's very, very difficult to edit something like that down to 10 minutes. So I, I left 
um, I left them, um, except for Becky Mills' sections, session. So um, Becky was also supposed to provide a 10-minute training session. The actual session was 34 minutes long. I did cut it down to something like 20 minutes for this, but I'm going to have both versions, the full version and the short version that you're going to see today on the replay website when, when it's ready. So again, register and I can send you the replay links. You can rewatch the content as often as you like. Okay, so um, the first speaker for today is, um, let me just quickly check, nobody's telling me they can't hear me. No, I think you guys can hear no noise. Um, right, so the first speaker is Dr. Patrick Titmarsh. Um, Patrick is an investigative trainer and criminologist specializing in investigating sexual offenses. He has extensive um, working, he has extensive, extensive experience of working with sex offenders and with the police. He's a Brit living in Australia and he developed a methodology of where to find evidence when investigating sexual offenses. Because in most cases, there's no external evidence. How do you, how do you convict someone? Um, you're about to find out now. And uh, let me just play Patrick's session right now. Hello, welcome to this rapid fire conference presentation on interviewing complainants and suspects in sexual crime cases. I wanna talk about four areas in my 10 minutes. Um, what investigators, interviewers need to know before they even start, the interview, the skill set of eliciting narrative from complainants in this uh, area of crime, which is uh, so complex, a little bit about interview planning of, for suspects and then into suspect interview planning and the similarities and differences between complainant and suspect interviewing. So, first of all, traditional models of interviewing in sexual crime cases have not been particularly uh, effective. So, you need a model that's geared to understanding relationship-based crime. The model we use uh, is called Whole Story, and it's based on an understanding that offending begins with offenders, that this is a, a relationship-oriented crime, that the evidence is in the relationship, and that the memory is everything, the story is everything, and that what we need in order to um, both talk to a suspect, but also um, to present the evidence to fact finders is a complete, consistent, and coherent narrative from the complainant. And that's pretty hard, particularly as we know there's a lot of myth and misconception out in the community. There's the phrase, counterintuitive behavior about victims, for example. So um, supposedly it's counterintuitive that people stay in relationships where they're being sexually assaulted or that they revisit that or that they don't tell. But actually, the more you understand the specialism of sexual crime, the dynamics of sexually abusive relationships and the behavior of offenders and the psychology of offenders, you realize that the way victims react to those behaviors is entirely intuitive and that there is a large body of scientific evidence about how wrong some of those myths, myths and misconceptions are. Um, I presented last time on that a little bit. And so you, through Police Science Doctor, you can get those resources or just look up um, the Institute of Criminology here in Australia. We did a piece uh, about adults and uh, with Victoria Police, we put out a piece about myths and misconceptions. And the reason I bang on about those is they are really the background to taking the case to fact finders in the future. Um, we know that the majority of cases um, won't get there. And part of the reason they don't is to get beyond reasonable doubt 
in an adversarial court is extraordinarily hard. And we know that the main job of defence is to destroy the credibility of the complainant. Whatever you think about that, that is the case. Um, there was an article just from um, a research piece from a couple of years ago looking at rape investigations in the 1950s and the 2000s and looking at whether defence counsel's tactics have changed in that time. And the short answer was, no, they haven't. <coughs> um, but the detail was interesting that what defence used to promote back in the 1950s would be more about, you know, the established reputation of the of the man in question, that she hadn't resisted, that there weren't any injuries. So, the, you know, they were allowed also to attack her sexual history back then. Um, and, and now the tactics so they don't tend to use those anymore those myths and misconceptions don't don't work quite so well those tactics don't work quite so well so what they're promoting now will be prior inconsistencies and memory issues and, and so on so really they're just shifting to another set of myths and misconceptions and the reason these are important is because we need to be aware of them uh, as investigators uh, so that we can both move on from them ourselves but also in the complainant interview, make sure that we see if there are any possible uh, gaps or problems there with that and cover them in the interview. So when we talk about the complainant interview in a, in a minute, you'll see how complicated it is to get to those kinds of questions. So lastly on the preparation, I want to just want to talk a little bit about what victim-centric and trauma-informed, because these were these phrases are, are, are everywhere now. What does that actually mean? So trauma-informed um, means that you understand the experience that victims of sexual crime have been through so that everything you do in creating the environment to tell that story, training your investigators, building rapport, eliciting the narrative, all come from an understanding of what they've experienced. And victim-centric really means that in that broader sense, um, we, we understand that experience and that our first goal is to support complainants through that process and just let me say one thing here about this believing because there's a debate about moving from disbelieving cultures means moving to believing cultures and really we can't do that as investigators the culture we need to promote is a culture of listening listening all right so let's talk about complaining interviews and first of all i want to read you something from peter levine who has written a lot about trauma and memory so he says in sharp contrast to gratifying or even troublesome memories, which can generally be formed and revisited as coherent narratives, traumatic memories tend to arise as fragmented splinters of inchoate and indigestible sensations, emotions, images, smells, tastes, thoughts, and so on. So this is in part why I think this is the highest level skill set in policing, interviewing complaints of sexual crime, because we know that that trauma has created problems for them in the way they have stored that memory and the way they're going to retrieve that memory. And we have to elicit that from them, from that trauma. Presumably with also fear and anxiety there about the consequences of telling that story, because let's face it, most victims still don't come forward and tell their stories because they're afraid of the way we're going to listen and hear those stories. And we have to do that without having heard the story before to take them through the breadth and the depth of that narrative to an endpoint of a complete, consistent and coherent one that we can then take uh, into suspect interview and then in front of fact finders. Um, memories are our crime scene in this field. Memories, they're the crime scene. And so our ability to draw that memory out, to understand the victim's experience, to understand trauma, and to go through the breadth and depth of that narrative um, is, it's everything. And it's why I think the attrition rate 
and it's partly why any of the attrition rate is so high. Um, and we have debates about uh, how many people can actually do this because it's such a difficult um, skill set to, to master. Um, so the difference, obviously, let's just talk about the difference with suspect interviewing here, because the biggest difference is you've heard the story before, or at least you've heard the complainant's version of that story, so you can, you can plan for it. Um, I want to tell you a story now about, um, I'll give you an example of this uh, fragmented narrative coming in, and then we'll look at how we might interview that, that particular suspect. <clears throat> so in, in the last presentation, I talked about a woman who went for a massage and she was sexually assaulted, digitally raped during um, um, that massage. Actually, somebody, let me just clarify, digitally raped, there were a few questions afterwards about what that means. Um, and I guess digital means different things. But in this instance, it means fingers. Um, nothing to do with, with technology, if anybody is... Um, um, still wondering or, or watching this presentation didn't see the one before um so what happens maybe when she comes to tell her story is she came in and said something along the lines of well i went to see this guy he was near i usually go to another lady he seemed good then he got me to take all my underwear off and he turned around while he while i was undressing and and um then the massage was good and i but but then he put his fingers in me and then then he asked me if, if I liked it, and well, I, I just paid and got out of there. And I phoned my sister, and and she said I should call you, but I just couldn't do it. And and um, anyway, here I am, and it's two weeks later when she comes in. So, inexperienced interviewers probably have a panic at this point, like where's the story here? And boy, that's full of holes. And in a way, <clears throat> on on first look, it, it is, but with good. Um, rapport building with good preparation for the breadth and the depth with a good understanding of myths and misconceptions we can pick that story apart and get her to then broaden that out and tell us the details so we can see the big gaps they've got a whole two-week gap from the offense to when she reports you've got gaps of um when he gets her to take her underwear off but then when the massage starts so that you've got to explore those Take me back to, to that point that what happened after that. Take me to this. So afterwards, what did you do after you spoke to your sister? Take me back. Then what happened? Then what happened? Then you can go back, obviously, to, to the depth and uh, of each point. So take me back to that point. Tell me everything you remember about that. And look, I'm not going to concentrate, you know, too much on the technique of that because, boy, you've, you've got Becky and Ray and Lawrence coming up. So, boy, you don't need me. Um, but um, what I want to get to is how then you would need to take her to those points of, um, you know, really the question is, why did you wait two weeks? Um, why did you take your underwear off? Why didn't you tell him to stop? Why didn't you tell the woman on, on the way out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and just to, <clears throat> to talk a little bit about that, one of the most important things we take investigators to in training is why are so many of our questions about victim behavior? And the real core point of whole story, aside from it being, you know, based for relationship-based crime, is to take them to the, an understanding of the offender, his psychology, um, and who, how he, how he behaves. Because you need to ask those questions. Yes, you do. But you also need to work out how did he get her to do that. Because we're going to need to take uh, fact finders down the track to be able to compare and contrast two narratives, and they need to see him and hear him. Otherwise, we're not really going to be successful uh, and we need to look at ourselves and why so many community questions are still about victim behavior and not about offender behavior um, okay so 
Let's assume we've done that. We've got the depth and breadth from her. We've taken her through the myths and misconceptions. She's given us answers. She said, well, I know it seemed logical to me. Um, um, I just wanted to sort of the question of, you know, what, why didn't you stop him? I was screaming in my head. I was terrified. Why did you pay? I just wanted to get out of there. Why didn't uh, you go to the police straight away? You've got answers to all of those. Um, Sometimes when you ask, you get, I don't know, and that's okay. But more often than not, we used to talk about that whenever we get the question, do we need an expert witness in this case? We'd say you've already got an expert and, and they're right there in front of you. So if we use depth and uh, depth of breadth uh, well, we build rapport well, we can take them without judgment, such an important phrase here, without judgment to um, the missing misconceptions that uh, anybody might uh, fall for, then you can get that complete, consistent and coherent narrative. And on that phrase judgment, let's talk then about suspect interviewing, because probably the hardest thing in suspect interviewing here is not necessarily the technique itself. It's the ability to work in this field without judgment, to sit in front of someone whose behavior uh, appalls you on every level. And I mean, we know, again, from research that sex offense suspects are the, are the most likely to perceive um, hostility from their interviewer, the most likely to shut down. Um, this work isn't for everybody. Interviewing suspects isn't, <clears throat> isn't for everybody. Um, and that's really quite a difficult task. I was thinking about, actually, um, a young investigator. She's a really good uh, investigator and a really good interviewer, and she builds rapport very well with sex offenders. And she told me this story about um, working with this guy and... She built rapport. He was talking about his offending. There was, but he he also wanted to explain himself. And I want to come back to that yeah, again. That that idea um, of a suspects in an interview wanting to explain themselves. So one of the hardest things we found trying to persuade investigators uh, was that sex offenders want to talk to you in a suspect interview. They they want to, and we call it in training tapping the desire to explain. You've got to be able to tap the desire he has to explain himself. Um, anyway, in the interview, she had clearly done that because he was trying to explain himself and he was trying to explain about his sexual attraction uh, to children. And he noticed that she, she had a wedding ring on and he said to her, you know, so you're married. She said, yes. She said, you know, the way you're attracted to your husband. She said, well, um, he, he said, that's sort of the way I'm attracted to children. And she was furious and she kind of, it would have been evident all over her face and clearly impacted the interview because he saw that and he saw her anger at that. Um, and so even when you're really good at it, you know, they still throw you a curveball. It's still, still difficult. <clears throat> and I don't know whether he, he was just being naive or if he was trying to get under her skin, but anyway, it did. Um, so this is difficult. In the time that I've got, and I notice I'm already over time, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and wrap it up. The point of planning is to understand the breadth of evidence that you have and the best way to put that. And I've noticed like lots of interviewers in policing are incredibly good at laying out evidence. The trick here is that they, are, they need to understand that the evidence is the story. You're not going to get much else. The story is the evidence. How do you then present that to him? How do you plan for the personality that you're going to be talking to? And how do you plan to build rapport without judgment with someone uh, who it's incredibly hard not to judge. So one more quick thing on that, which is that, that old-fashioned notion of asking questions is what keeps you in control of the interview. And the next thing I think that um, in, uh, interviewers find difficult with suspects is to let them talk. And how do you let them talk? And how do you let them talk without them spilling off into irrelevance outside? So how do you manage that conversation, to use that phrase, um, 
because the old, the old fashioned notion is that questions keep it under control. I'll ask the questions, you give me the answers. And here, the same is true. Um, invitational questions, just like you would a complainant. So for example, we had a case um, with a guy who said uh, he, he, he had in the course of the allegation was he had in the course of a consensual sexual experience, uh, penetrated the, the, the woman with um, a bottle. And so to the invitational question, tell me what you're here to talk about today. His answer was, uh, I'm here about sticking the bottle in, you know, which caused him trouble in the interview. So our point of you can use the same frame. Actually, I've got a, a, a colleague, a really uh, like uh, uh, old school copper, a lovely guy and a really good interviewer. And he, he swears by this. He says that one of his favorite beginnings is when he gets no comments or people who are a bit fractious or rapport isn't going so well. When he gets to that, he goes, would you like to know what's been said about you? Now, he swears that always works. I'm sure it doesn't, but he swears it does. But it gets to that point on <clears throat> you need to tap the need people have in the interview to tell their story and to explain themselves. So to recap, you need to understand the unique challenges of this area of interviewing, of sexual crime. You need to understand myths and misconceptions. You need a model that works for this, that works for relationship-based crime. You need to be able to build rapport. You need to do this work without judgment. You need to understand that core skill set and how it works slightly differently with complainants and suspects. You need to plan. It's the biggest thing we have uh, in our advantage. So in our plan, we give them a template and it includes grooming one and grooming two, the unique signifiers, and it you know repeats in a number of ways, understanding the suspect, what are you going to do before the interview starts, all of it, because we know like most people make up their minds before the interview even starts, whether they're going to talk to us or not on the way they've been treated. So it gives them a plan for all of that. And then one page to take in uh, with themes and questions that they can lead off with, because that opportunity to plan should hopefully then bring you into the interview with the suspect without judgment so that you can gather his complete narrative because we know once we put them in front of fact finders we need a complete consistent coherent narrative from her puts to him his narrative if we can possibly get it so that we can avoid some of the pitfalls of that bar of beyond reasonable doubt and some of the things that we know that um defense counsel are going to do uh, to our complainant when they get to that forum Thanks very much uh, for listening. Um, enjoy the rest of the conference. So that was our first speaker for today, Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh. Um, somebody's saying they're looking forward to Patrick's book coming out. So here is the book. I've put the link in the comments already. Let me just put it in there again for everyone um, who's interested. So you can read a lot more about whole story, um, Patrick's methodology for investigating sexual offenses in that upcoming book. Now, what I forgot to mention I'm going to do after each session is I'm also going to um, extract my key learning points from there because um, it helps me to um, better absorb something that I've just heard and um, it might well help you from based on from what I based on what I've heard about the last conference when I was doing that. You guys do like me doing that, so I'm, I am going to do it. So in the key, key learning points from Patrick's talk just now, um, the evidence is in the relationship. Memory is everything. The story is everything. Defense counsel's tactics haven't changed much in the past 70 years. Now, what do you think about that? Let me know in the comments. Let each other know in the comments. 
if you've noticed this to be true or if you've noticed this not to be true, have defense counsel's tactics changed much in the last 70 years? So what Patrick was saying that, you know, they used to paint the um, the man in a really good light. You know, he's a professional, such a decent, upstanding citizen. Um, and, you know, they, they may be used to question women's um, sexual history. They can't do that anymore. So now they're going after cognitive things and memory things. And, and actually, juries and... Um, even the police are not that well informed about these, um, how this all works, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this conference, because we actually understand how it works, but practitioners need to below it better, but barristers, solicitors, defense solicitors, the jury, jury judges need to know it better. Um, Victim-centric means uh, we understand they, uh, their experience and we support the complainant through the process. We need to promote a culture of listening. So um, Patrick was saying that we don't automatically as investigators um, believe everything that somebody tells us, you know, no matter who they are. Um, obviously, we shouldn't disbelieve what they tell us either. We need to promote a culture of listening, be open-minded. Traumatic memories come back as fragmented bits of information. Now, guess what? What we would like in policing is to have, you know, almost like, um, like a video recording of somebody's memory. But that's not how it works, especially with traumatic memories. Memories do not come back that way when they're traumatic, okay? And that is often attacked by defense as... Um, has a weakness in the victim's account. So we need to be aware of that, that it is actually not a weakness of the account. It's, it's actually just a sign that this is a genuine traumatic memory. Um, memories are our crime scene. So very interesting thing to say there. Interviewing for sexual offense cases is one of the hardest skill sets in policing to master. Um, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? You need to build good rapport and go back to specific points in the victim's account to fill in all the gaps. So if there are any gaps, you as an interviewer, you need to ask the questions and get the answers. The victim is the expert witness on this particular case. And um, you need to ask them the questions, you know, why did this, why did you do this? Why did you do that? But you need to be very careful that you do not come across as judgmental. So you need to have really good rapport with that victim and you need to work on that and you need to maintain the rapport, but you do need to ask the difficult questions because they are going to come up in court. Why are so many of our questions about victim behavior though and not offender behavior? We need to start asking how did he get her to do that rather than why did she do that? Um, with suspects, you need to be able to be free of judgment and stay open-minded. That's one of the biggest challenges um, because suspects are just suspects and not necessarily guilty. And even if they are guilty, you still need to build really good rapport with them. You need to be free of judgment and you're not there to punish them, okay? The criminal justice system is there to deal with them, not you. You are the fact finder. You need to be open-minded and free of judgment. Sex offenders want to explain themselves in interviews, um, so tap their desire to do so. Um, plan the suspect interview, their personality, how to build rapport, how to put the evidence to them without judgment. And um, this phrase that Patrick's friend used, would you like to know what's been said about you? Um, let me know if you're going to try that out and then let me know how it goes. So um, that was Patrick. Uh, tell me what you thought about this training session. Um, I don't know if Patrick, Patrick is watching, it's probably um, in the middle of the night for him, but my Cluedo, one of our sponsors, is actually restreaming this conference um, for the, um, for the uh, Australasian region um, tomorrow. Um, Wednesday very soon but obviously it's a different time zone for us so it's going to be a much more palatable time palatable time for you guys over there um, so the next sponsor I want to talk to you about is the International Policing Association or International Police Association 
It's the largest police association in the world with over 350,000 members in more than 65 countries. Police officers, staff, PCSOs and specials can become an ordinary member even if they have left the police and associate membership is available for those working within policing but not employed directly. Member benefits are vast and range from discounts on travel and accommodation, access to unique seminars, learning events, discounts for CPD, all the way to international training events, financial bursaries and IPA-owned houses across the world available at a very low cost. Join today and become part of the wider um, policing family. Now, let me put the link into the comments. I am an IPA member. And actually, if you are an IPA member, then you get a 25% discount on any of the courses that I'm, I have or I'm going to have in the Police Science Doctor Academy. So if you're an IPA member in the newsletters that announce my, in the IPA newsletters that announce my courses, there's a discount code for IPA members. You get 25% off if you join the IPA. So even just for that, it might well be worth um, you joining. It's not very expensive. I think I paid 20 something pounds or something for the year or 30 something pounds. Right, okay, so let's get on to the next speaker. Our next speaker is a very, very, very eminent Professor Ray Bull, and he's actually in the audience. So I saw somebody, um, let me just say this quickly, I saw somebody um, asking, somebody from Canada asking in the comments, you know, what do you think of the peace model of interviewing? Now, Ray Bull is one of the people who developed the peace model and who was involved in it, and, you know, signing off the psychological aspects of it. Um, it's been enforced here in England since 1992, and it is seen as the standard that should be achieved in investigative interviewing of suspects around the world. Um, it isn't being used everywhere yet, but it's getting used more and more. So Ray Bull is in the audience. He's watching on YouTube, so hopefully he'll be able to answer questions you've got um, about his session now. And um, right, so this, this was Ray Bull. Um, in March 2021, that's this year, Ray was informed that Stanford University and the major publisher Elsevier had created a database of 160,000 top scientists, and Ray's name was included in A, the top 2% of scientists regarding data based across their career, and B, in the top 4% of scientists based on the citations in the year 2019. He's a um, professor of criminal He's Professor of Criminal Investigations at the University of Derby. He's Emeritus Professor of Forensic Psychology at the University of Leicester. And he's former president of the European Association of Psychology and Law. Um, so um, I'll, I'll tell you, he's, um, he's definitely earned his place here. And I'm going to play his session now. Hi, today I've been invited to talk to you about some research on improving the interviewing of suspects, and in particular, what seems to be the most important skills. Now, in 2016, the United Nations Special Rapporteur and Torture and Other Inhumane or Degrading Treatments submitted his report recommending the production of a universal protocol, a worldwide document on interrogating, interviewing to the UN Secretary General that was then adopted by the UN General Assembly. And when mentioning this universal protocol, the special rapporteur noted that encouragingly, some states, some countries have moved away from accusatorial, manipulative, and confession-driven interviewing models with a view to increasing accurate and reliable information 
and minimizing the risks of unreliable information and miscarriages of justice. And he continued that the essence of an alternative information gathering model was first captured by the peace model of investigative interviewing adopted in 1992 in England and Wales. And investigative interviewing, he said, can provide positive guidance for the protocol. So what is the PEACE model? It stands for planning and preparation, engaging the interviewee in conversation, explaining to them their rights and so on, only then seeking account, and I'm going to talk about the skills involved in that major phase, before the interview ends, having a closure phase. And finally, once the interview is over, it should be video recorded, there is an opportunity to evaluate how well the interview went, how skilled it was, and the information gained. But is the peace model effective? There are many studies now on this. I'll just talk about a few. For example, in our study of a large sample of real-life interviews with people who may have been involved in committing crime, we examined whether interviewing in a way that's compatible with the peace model or any relationship to the actual outcomes of these interviews. And this was the first study of the effectiveness of the peace model. And we found that better peace interviewing was associated with securing a greater number of comprehensive accounts, including exculpatory ones, as well as admissions confessions. So which of the skills in this study were found to be the most effective? And of course, the account phase is the most important one, though they're all important. So the skills that were associated with the positive outcomes were encouraging the suspect to give an account, developing topics, using appropriate types of questioning, exploring the information perceived from the suspect, remaining open-minded, and demonstrating the skill of active listening. And as you can see here, 63% of the interviews rated as satisfactory or above for the skills in this account phase did obtain a comprehensive account or a full confession, whereas only 12% of those interviews rated as needs further training, not being good in these skills, did so. We've also examined how interviewers attempt to overcome suspects' initial denials of knowing about the alleged wrongdoing. And we examined the association between the extent to which the suspects moved or shifted in the interview from denying to providing relevant information and the interviewer's skills. And we found that the shifting from denying to providing relevant information most often occurred when certain skills were present, many of which are part of the PEACE model. Let's quickly have a look at them. There was a disclosing of information. We've done other work on how best to do that, and the answer is to do it piece by piece gradually. And then emphasizing contradictions, either within what the suspect has said or what the suspect has said compared with the information that the interviewer knows. Behaving in a way that encourages the account, gentle prods, remaining, keeping open-minded and keeping open questions still being persistent, positively confronting, that's not meaning oppression, asking probing questions, 
providing an appropriate structure for the interview, regularly summarizing what the person says to indicate you've understood, showing concern for the situation they are currently in, not sympathy for what they may have done, and the skill of being silent at certain times, which I just tried and is very difficult. Found not to be effective in this study of overcoming denials were maximization, making things out to be more serious than they are, minimization, offering themes or excuses for why the person may have committed this bad behavior, intimidating the person, challenging their account in oppressive ways, interrupting the suspect, asking leading questions, suggesting what might have happened, and situational futility, which is, it's all up now, you might as well confess, there's no point in you continuing to deny. Now, some of these skills in red uh, have been trained in a variety of countries, but our study found them to be counterproductive. You might think some of them are unethical, uh, I'm not here to talk about that today. Uh, very briefly, in another of our studies of real-life interviews, a large sample of suspects in serious cases where the interviewing with appropriate breaks lasted on average, I think, about five or six hours. And we did find some significant associations between interviewer skills and the suspects choosing to respond. Rapport and empathy, that's cognitive empathy, not effective empathy, is important. Again, open type questions are associated with the increased likelihood of suspects deciding to admit the offense. Whereas the asking of what we call negative questions, this has been published, contact me if you want to know more about it. They were associated with a decreased likelihood. And in this substantial study, we also examined which strategies were associated with the interviewees continuing to respond relevantly now, you may know in real-life interviews in serious cases, if you're skillful enough to encourage the suspect ethically to talk, many of them will talk, but not on what the interviewer wants to talk about. So it's a great skill to encourage the suspect to respond relevantly from the interviewer's point of view. And again, we found positive associations for the building and maintenance rapport uh, Lawrence Allison's an expert on that, the use of cognitive empathy, skillfully and gradually presenting the evidence and behaving in a way that requests the attention of the suspect. But again, we found some negative associations for ex explicitly asking for an account. You've got to tell us the truth, emphasizing the seriousness of the offense. And again, situational futility came out as having a negative relationship. So in closing, I want to mention what it says in the recently publicized Universal Protocol on Effective Interviewing. It says it will typically involve the following, thorough preparation and planning, keeping an open mind, establishing and maintaining rapport, using scientifically supported questioning techniques, active listening, and enabling the interviewee to speak freely and completely for example, not interrupting, and then skillfully contrasting what the interview says with what the already, sorry, what the interviewer already knows. And of course, after the interview, assessing the information gathered and the skills demonstrated. So I've quickly gone over some of the most important skills that research says 
are important. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Ray, for providing this training session. Some of you were saying in the comments already this was, and uh, you really enjoyed the session. If you haven't already um, said anything about it, please tell me what you thought of the training session. There's a specific reason why I'm asking you that. So did you think this was a good training session by Ray? Yes or no? And why do you think it was um, either good or not good? So put it into the comments. Ray is, um, is actually in the audience. If you've got any questions to him, please start the question with a queue and I'll be able to, um, to show it on the screen. So... Whilst you're telling me what you thought of Ray's session here, I'm just going to extract my key learning points from this. Um, so the P stands for P, planning and preparation. E, engage and explain. A is for account. C is for closure, not for challenge. In some forces, it's taught as challenge. I think it may have been taught as challenge when I was being trained, but it's closure. And um, E is evaluation, so you should always see how you're doing. And I don't think this is happening nearly enough in, in actual police forces. You know, when do you, do you actually evaluate your interviews after you've done them? Does anyone review them? Do you ever reflect on how they went and what you could do better next time and what worked well already? Does anyone actually ever do that? If, if so, please let me know. If not, please let me know as well. Um, so, yeah. And uh, so that was the... Um, so I was getting, getting lost there. Another piece of information from Ray's session, greater number of comprehensive accounts from suspects, both exculpatory ones and admissions were obtained using the PEACE model of interviewing. And some of the factors that make it so effective are the use of open questions, so not closed questions where, you, where you're presenting um, a range of answers, but an open question that doesn't have a specific answer, positive confrontation, not challenging, not hostile, not judgmental, silence. Now, I, I used a lot of silence in my interviews. Disclosure of information, but you need to be smart about it. Um, obviously, don't pretend to have information that you don't have. Okay, um, we don't do that here in the UK, for example. I know other countries do that. Um, it's seen as unethical. And it also is an effective, it actually has a backfiring effect. So evidence should be disclosed in stages strategically. Um, regularly summarizing what the suspect has said, because then first of all, you're making sure that you got it right, but also the suspect knows you're actually listening and understanding. And um, empathy, right? Things that don't work in interviewing suspects are maximization, you know, sort of inflating the severity of the offense, minimization, you know, sort of trying to minimize it to make it easier for the suspect to confess, that doesn't work. Um, intimidation, challenging the account, leading questions, suggesting scenarios and situational futility. So as Ray said, futility is like, you know, it's, it's all over anyway, you might as well come clean and tell us now. So these things don't work, but they are still being taught in some police departments. So um, oh, I can see a question here. Can Professor Ray comment on how culture may impact the execution of the peace model throughout other countries? So how culture may impact the execution of peace model throughout other countries. So this could be complicated because in some other countries, it's very common to use intimidating tactics. But um, obviously, sorry, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just putting my thing in there. Maybe um, Ray, if he's still watching, can answer that. Um, another question here is, what is the title and link to the substantial study? Good summary by Ray. Um, that's a good point. I don't actually have the link for you here right now. It's in the ebook. 
um, if you want the ebook, then let me know. If you if you don't want the ebook, can you um, email me later and I'll send you the um, the study, Chris, please? Um, because it was actually a good point. I should have um, come um, pulled that out for you guys. And um, right, so hopefully you all thought this was um, a good presentation by Ray because what I would like to tell you is that Ray and I are actually releasing a short course on interviewing suspects today. It's available today. I'm putting the link in the comments here. Um, it's this here short course and it's for anyone who's either already interviewing um, suspects, who's an investigator, a detective, or just interested in the topic, you might still be um, a patrol officer, you might be a student officer, you might be a student, and you might not actually be working in the police, you might work in corporate organizations, whatever your role is, if you've got any interest in learning from the legend that is Ray Bull himself, where else are you going to be doing that? You know, we're not traveling much at the moment, but you can do it from your own desk. So this is a short course. It's, um, I don't know, maybe maybe a couple of hours long. It's only 75 pounds. I think maybe there's $100 or something like that. So if you want to know more about this, um, if you want a better understanding of the peace model, if you want to know a bit, if you want a better understanding of evidence-based tactics of interviewing suspects, okay? Not just accepting what is being taught or what you've seen your colleagues do or maybe what you've developed yourself, but actually things that have been tried and tested and have been scientifically shown to be effective in getting suspects to engage, in getting suspects to explain, in giving suspect, getting suspects to give you a comprehensive account, to overcome initial denials and to let them tell you more honestly whether they be innocent or um, or guilty, what, the, um, what their side of the story is. So these are evidence-based practices and you can actually learn that from Professor Ray himself. So it's just the web, my main website, policesciencedoctor.com forward slash RB1. So RB for Ray Bull 1. Um, let me see if, uh, right. So great, Ray has actually provided an answer. The usefulness of the peace model in other cultures was a concern of mine years ago, but research by others around the world does actually support its usefulness. Okay, so it's been tested in other cultures and it's been, um, it's got the evidence base there as well. Great, okay. So again, go to RB1 if you're interested in learning from Professor Ray himself, a short course on investigative interviewing, how best to interview suspects, okay? It's really going to be worth your time. So the next sponsor, before we get to the next session, um, because I'm being supported by several organizations here, um, obviously a very relevant one, the International Investigative Interviewing Research Group is a worldwide network of interviewing professionals working together with national and international bodies committed to the development of investigative interviewing underpinned by a robust evidence base. We are composed of world-leading experts, practitioners, academics, trainers, organizations, and student researchers seeking to improve and progress the field of investigative interviewing worldwide. Alongside our commitment of improving knowledge transfer through productive, transparent international working relationships between academics and practitioners, we run a successful, world-renowned annual conference at locations around the globe. We also publish an open access journal um, on the latest research and investigative interviewing. Join us for our next, um, for our first online event. So that's going to be commencing on the 6th of September. I'm just going to put the link to the II. IRD. It's a bit of a mouthful um, here in the comments, and um, hopefully you can you can then visit them, and um, hopefully they can be of use to you. 
Right. So the next training session is the wonderful Becky Milne. Becky is a professor of forensic psychology and is a chartered forensic psychologist and scientist and associate fellow of the British Psychological Society. She's an associate editor of the International Journal of Police Science and Management and is on the editorial boards for the Journal of Investigative Psychology and Defender Profiling and Frontiers Forensic and Legal Psychology, the Journal of Police and Criminal Psychology, and the British Journal of Forensic Practice. Becky is one of the academic lead members of the Association of, of the National Police Chiefs Council, the NPCC, Investigative Interviewing Strategic Steering Group. So again, somebody extremely, extremely highly qualified, and I'm going to play you Becky's session now. Today, I'm going to talk about the cognitive interview. Now, most of you probably would have heard of the cognitive interview. It's trained all over the world to lots of investigative organisations. So I'm going to give a little insight to what this cognitive interview actually is. I'll give a little bit of a history and then I'll explain it and how it works in the real world. I'm very fortunate. I train the cognitive interview to police pra practitioners, um, on a very regular basis. So um, I'm used to trying to utilize this technique in the real world. So let's first of all, look at what it actually is. So it's a model of interviewing and it was developed by two cognitive psychologists who were in America, Ed Geisman and Ron Fisher. And how it even started was there was um, a detective from the LAPD and he realized that when in the real world, when he spoke to witnesses, when he asked questions, he seemed to be putting words in their mouth. And there were things left in his brain, you know, in their brain. And he said he just didn't know what to do to get that bit of information that seemed to be left without sort of contaminating it. So he went to his local university, met Ed and Ron, two cognitive psychologists, and they came up with the cognitive interview. So this is such a good example of where a real world problem, so a police officer going, what do I do? Goes to a university and then something is developed in partnership. And the cognitive interview, this was in the early eighties. So the cognitive interview has really changed and morphed over the years. And generally, the change in the morph is due to real-world problems. When we're seeing it in practice, that works, that doesn't work. So the cognitive interview, the aim of it is to gather that accurate, reliable, and fulsome information, primarily for someone who is cooperative, be they witness victim or suspect, be they client. But as long as your aim is to get accurate, reliable information from someone, the cognitive interview is your model. Now, when they first created it back in the 1980s, the first ever publications actually in 1984, it consisted of four primary techniques. And these four primary techniques aimed to facilitate memory, to help memory, and also to ease communication. Now, before I go through what the four techniques are, I want to explain why they had to look at this two-pronged approach, memory, and communication. Now that interviewing process to get that information to make good decisions has two sort of two parts to it. The first part, as I always say, is gathering that information from memory. 
Mm -hmm. You get it here. The second part then is relaying that information to another being. So that's why you've got the memory bit and then you've got the communication bit. And that's why we need the two areas. Now, let's look at memory first of all. Now, when I train the cognitive interview, I normally do a whole day on memory theory. So to really understand how to interview someone, you need to know a lot about what this memory is. I'm going to pick a couple of things. The first is that we all know through lots of research that memory is incredibly, incredibly fragile. So fragile. It's easy to contaminate it. So easy. And as I always explain, and I'm sure people who have heard me talk before, you know, when you go to, you know, I always pretend to die in my training. And I always say, right, when someone's died, what's the first job we do? Well, first of all, it's preserve life. The second thing is actually preserve the scene. And what we're trying to do to stop preserving the scene with police tape around it is to stop the contamination of the forensic scene. However, what I always say, I would love to put police tape around everyone's head at the scene. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Because the brain, this memory, is a scene in its own right. And I always liken that brain, that memory scene to snow. And you wake up in the morning, you've got a field of white snow. And we know it's really easy to contaminate it, to walk footprints along that snow. So that's the problem. This memory from the scene all the way through the justice system is so easy, so fragile, so easy to be contaminated. You've almost got to see it as like a little bit of snow in your hand that you've got to try and protect. But the criminal justice, what I call contamination timeline, doesn't really protect that fragile memory through the process at the scene itself, the frontline police officers, then you might have a formal interview, then you've got all the way through in our justice systems. But think about memory, it's really, really fragile. The second area was communication. Now, people sit there when we start um, putting in interview training packages into organisations, and I'm very fortunate I've been part of um, many organisations across the globe sort of embarking on creating investor interviewing strategies within their organisations. And people say to me, Becky, why do we need to train people to talk? We've all been talking for a very young age. Can't we just learn from our colleagues who are more experienced? Now, unfortunately, we know through interviewing, through lots of research, is that experience does equal competence. You can be interviewing 40 years badly. So that is one thing we've all learned from multitude of cultures across lots of research. You need to have experience in the knowledge of investigation and the points to prove and the law. I'm not talking about that, but actually the act of interviewing. So why do we need to teach people? This is really quite fascinating. Now, one way to start working this out is by looking at everyday conversation so if we don't train someone they will rely on their everyday conversation and if we look at our everyday conversation in life what we find is people tend to use very closed and leading questions they also learn something called the maxim of quantity and the maxim of quantity is a really interesting concept 
we learn from a very young age that detail is not required in everyday conversation. So when someone says to you, did you have a good holiday? Yeah, we know that they don't want the full information. They don't really want to see the photographs. If someone says to you, did you have a good day? Yeah, I'm a little bit naughty in work. And if I'm feeling a little bit bored, I walk down the corridor and if someone says to me, do you have a good day? I tend to say no. Right. No. People aren't prepared for the no. Try it, guys. Really funny. Right. And then you say, oh, I'm only joking. The relief on that person's face when you say I'm only joking is immeasurable. Right. And that shows that we don't deal in detail. So with everyday conversation, we use closed and leading questions and we know closed and leading questions results in less detail, which is less reliable. Wouldn't want to base my investigative decisions on that type of information. So I'm now going to go through the four cognitive interview primary instructions. So the first is the report everything instruction. This instruction, and now you can see, that's why I had to tell you about the memory and you know, the communication, because even a regular adult, you tell them, tell me everything, don't leave anything out. And we know even regular adults withhold more than they spontaneously report. Okay, so when I say to someone, tell me everything, they have to get the information. Everyone, they will make a decision. Do I tell you, do I not? Do I tell you, do I not? And that's even people who are cooperative and wanting to help. They will withhold because they won't think it's relevant, not important, that you already know, a whole host of things. So that report everything instruction is so important and it covers all those. Please don't leave anything out. And of course, we tailor it depending on the individual. So if the individual is part of a larger um, investigation and they know the police have interviewed other people, they might withhold because they think the police already know. If there's CCTV, they might withhold. So we do tailor this technique to the individual and the circumstances of the investigation. But the central tenet is, tell me everything, don't leave anything out. Now, added to that is something that we call the demo technique, to demonstrate the level of detail. My trusty water bottle goes around the world with me. So what we do is demonstrate the level of detail yeah, that we would require or would love in an interview. Obviously, with an object, which is unusual, that would stand out on the table. Um, and I'm going to describe to the level of detail that would be great in a witness interview. Now, normally, we just say it's a water bottle with looks like water in it. Okay. However, this is the sort of level of detail that would be great. So it's got a brown top and it's matte, it's plastic, matte brown. Also, the handle, you can see the handle here, it's a different material. So it's not just what I see, but it's also what I feel. We have five senses, so we can feel the handle, the material. Now, that pattern, that pattern is quite difficult to describe, okay, verbally, because I've taken it away. So if we describe it, think about how you would describe it. Well, it's hearts going in different directions, cut in half with different colours. How would you explain the size of it? of each heart and you know, immediately what am I doing? I'm using non-verbal behavior. So as soon as a witness uses non-verbal behavior, then they have difficulty verbally describing something. That pattern is actually easier to draw. Second 
cognitive interview technique is called the context reinstatement instruction. Now, we know that context has a powerful effect on memory, very powerful effect on memory. To the extent you bump into someone, I bumped into someone the other day and we did the old, we had that feeling of familiarity. I recognized them. I knew I knew them, but I couldn't place them. They're out of context. I bumped into them in my butchers and she was my dentist. It took me two hours to work out who on earth she was. She was out of context. But if I'm at the dentist surgery, I wouldn't do the old, you know, I'm very quiet in the dentist, not quite very often. Dentist and running, two times I'm quiet, can't talk. So context is really powerful. Now we know through research that if the sort of what we call the encoding context. So if the context where someone witnessed the event, yeah, if the learning, as it place it goes into the head, is similar, yeah, to the retrieval environment, i.e. where they're trying to remember it, the better the memory. Now, this would suggest us to take our witnesses and victims back to the scene. However, there's problems with that, and indeed there are about five problems with taking someone back to the scene. Could contaminate their memory, could contaminate the scene, could be time-consuming, logistical issues, the scene, you know, might be um, in a war zone, risk to the, or might be in the middle of a park, yeah, and of course it could be too traumatising for the individual, so there's reasons not to go back. But we're not, so we never say never. You know, what we always do is on the tool of the tool belt of the inquiry, we say, do an interview recorded first, and then it's a potential to take them back, make the scene after, once we've taken all these other considerations in, you know, into account. However, we know that getting people to think in their brain about the context helps their memory. Now, the easiest way to do that is get someone to draw a sketch plan back to drawing. So we know through research that, such as Coral Dando first did, um, um, we looked at the use of sketch plans. And we know just getting people to draw a sketch plan about an event is a really good memory tool. Now, a common error is you not, you know, I have seen investigators actually draw a sketch plan for the witness, which seems a bit odd. Um, it's about their memory. The sketch plan will not be an accurate representation because it's a memory tool. That's something we also need to keep in mind. Or it doesn't look at, you know, it may be a small proportion of where the event happened because that's what's important. Um, also, I've seen people not actually ask the witness to um, narrate, to describe what's happening when they're drawing. It's also important, you know. They can do a little bit of do, 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 and then describe, fine, but make sure that they describe and also useful if they label it. Obviously, some jurisdictions, they need to sign it as part of the evidence bag. But the key is, if you label it, that is your notes ready for questioning because that's a really good representation of what they've got in their brain. So we have sketch plans. But then we also have the full mental reinstatement of context, which basically is getting people to close their eyes and for you to help create the picture of the event in their head. Now, we do context in two places. We normally do it at the beginning, um, which is helping globally, or molar context. 
but we can also do it at various elements when we break it down as part of questioning later, molecular contexts or mini contexts. And that's where it's used. So it's basically getting that person to think in their mind's eye about the scene. Now, I'll demonstrate it very quickly because we've only got 10 minutes. I'm sure I'm running out of time already. But, and it could take 10 minutes to do. But the key is, and the reason is to explain to a witness victim and suspect, if we use it with suspect, is why we're doing it. Now, to explain that the scene is part, obviously, of the event. Now, getting them to close their eyes is helping them free their mind up. And what I mean is, I, as an interviewer, are a distraction. So the reason I get them to close their eyes is purely so they block out me, the biggest distraction in the world. And I know I really have to, I'm very handy, as you've already gathered. So when I interview, I have to calm my own nonverbals down massively. So that's one reason we say close your eyes because it just helps you think and I can be a distraction. I will try and be as calm as possible myself as an interviewer. Then, of course, we say the other reason is because it helps memory and we give them a real life example. So when you've lost something like a set of keys or a pair of glasses, what do we tend to do? We try to retrace our steps in our head and think, were they in the car? Were they here? Were they there? Because that helps our memory. So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to help them create a picture, to help them retrace their steps in their head about the, the incident under investigation. So we get them to close their eyes. And then, you know, we also tell them actually beforehand that we're going to go slow. And then we'll say over to you at the end, and that's for their time to free recall. So this tends to come in at the end of the sort of the instructions at the beginning. So we get them to close their eyes or look at the floor if they feel uncomfortable closing their eyes. And then we list a set of things. So at the beginning, it's at the start of an interview, it's very general. So think of the scene, if the interviewer knows it's at a bridge, think about the bridge, think about the layout of the scene. Think about, it's almost like painting a picture in the head, think, and think about how you paint a picture. So think about the event at that time. Think about the people that were there. Think about the objects that were there. I'm doing it quite quickly, guys. Normally it's really slow. Think about the colours that were there. Think about the sounds that you remember hearing at that point, time. And think about how you felt. Now, very important, another common error, it's not reliving. It's not present tense. All the research validating these techniques is in the past tense. You notice I use past tense. So again, that's another common error. So I know when people haven't been trained properly is when they say, oh, it's reliving. It's helping memory now for the past. It's not putting them back there. <laughs> that's really important with this instruction because the research base, the evidence base is all in the past tense. So the third technique is of the original four, change perspective and change order. These are third and fourth. 
these are used less frequently in the field. And to be honest, these are better to be used on an advanced interview course because people find them quite challenging. So the change perspective technique is not about change of location. I've heard it that you're a bird in the sky. You've got no memory of being a bird in the damn sky, right? This purely is about shifting personal perspective, which is very difficult because you have the as-if type of nature, which is a problem in the in the um, the legal world. However, I was doing some training in New Zealand, and this New Zealand police officer. He'd obviously, he was on a, an advanced tier three, as we call them in Britain, witness course. And he came back after a couple of days training. He said, Becky, can I call it spotlighting? Can I put it, put in someone in a spotlight, this change perspective? And I went, love it. He goes, I read the original research. He said, it's really, it's almost like, so what we're trying to do, and it tends to happen in the questioning phase of the interview, what do we tend to do is we get someone to think about a particular person in the event. And what we do is we get them to spotlight that individual, like they're on a stage. And if they're on a stage, if just thinking about that person and their actions, what they did, frame by frame, action by action, yeah, about action. So it's still their memory. It's not changing. It's just thinking about individuals in their own memory. And that's how we train the change perspective technique these days, called spotlighting. The final technique is the reverse order recall or change order. And this is really for one particular memory problem. And this is some, if someone is stuck in the groove of script memory, I normally on a Friday I meet Don, Dave and Sue, and I normally do this and I normally do that. Now, if we've got someone stuck in the groove of, um, of script, and we want to know what happened on the Friday night, one way to help that is say, what was the last thing you remember? Happened just before that. So it's a way of getting what we call script inconsistent information. So I hope you've enjoyed this section, this little segment. And I'm sure I've done more than 10 minutes, so I apologize. And I hope you've enjoyed it. And please don't be strangers. Thank you very much. So I unmuted myself now straight away. Um, but you can hear some dog in the neighborhood. Um, apologies for that. So that was Professor Becky Milne. I've just put a link um, into the comments, um, a book by Rabel and Milne together as one of the seminal works on investigative interviewing. Um, I, I forgot to tell you that all book links I've been providing you with today are actually affiliate links. All that means is that Amazon gives me a little bit of a percentage um, if you buy the book, um, but the authors get the same. And um, the book costs you the same. You're not paying anything more. Um, it's just Amazon that gives them a bit of a reward for putting the two of you together. Two dogs fighting outside now. So I'm just going to do a quick summary of um, my key extracted learning points of um, Becky Milne's session here. So the whole cognitive interview started because an LAPD officer went to um, his local university and uh, said to the researchers there, I'm not getting all the information out of my witnesses' heads and I feel I'm putting words into their mouths. So he was he was really, really perceptive there because that's probably what he was doing. So they developed the cognitive interview. The cognitive interview is there to gather accurate, reliable, fulsome information. And there's two main parts to it. It's the memory and then it's communicating that memory. And the brain, the brain is a crime scene in its own right. So think about the police tape there. Memory is really fragile. And Becky called it the criminal justice contamination timeline 
from the events throughout the whole code process. Um, without training, we revert back to everyday conversations. And in everyday conversations, we use a lot of close questions and we withhold a lot of detail. Now, the four main parts of the cognitive interview, and um, mind you, it has, it has morphed since 1992, um, was one, report everything, all details, maybe draw it, use nonverbal communication. Two, context reinstatement, uh, mentally bring witness back into the context, get them to draw a sketch plan, get witness to close their eyes, reimagine all aspects of the event, block out distractions, get them to paint a picture in the head, recall the sounds, colors, people's, people, objects, and how they felt. Everything needs to be in past tense. So um, don't talk the victim through it as if they were there right now. Everything needs to be in the past tense. And um, then you've got change perspective and um, change order. So the change perspective is now called spotlighting. You know, you're selecting a different person who was there and you, you, you're taking them through the, so you're getting the witness to recall everything from that person's perspective and change order. So especially if you've got what you called episodic memory, if something happens regularly, but you want to, information about a specific event, it helps to extract that information if you're actually going backwards on it. Um, so the um, link to Becky's um, book is in there. Um, the links and the transcripts are in the ebook. Let me just give you that information again. So if you don't want the, um, if you don't want the, where is where is that link now? If you if you don't want to sign up for the police science book, the email list, and you want you're happy to pay full price for the ebook, that's absolutely fine. I just put the link back in there. But if you are a subscriber or if you're um, if you want the and if you want the ebook um, at a discounted rate, I've put the link in there as well. So the last sponsor for today, before we go to our, get to our last session, is MyCludo. MyCludo is an online marketplace for investigation and risk professionals. We connect clients with service providers, provide competitive quotes, and support clients to make the best choice of provider. MyCludo also delivers um, ongoing professional development programs for experienced investigators and um, promotes career long learning, career long learning within the profession. So um, this company is actually based in, in Australia and um, they've partnered up with us to stream, to restream this event tomorrow for the for the people over there who are unfortunately um, probably sleeping at the moment. So let me just put the link to my clue in here for anyone who might be interested. And there you go. Right, so are you ready for Lawrence Allison? He's been mentioned by is it almost, I think it may have been all three other speakers. Um, so he's an expert on building rapport in investigative interviews, and he's going to give you the top 10 tips on um, on interviewing today. Let me just show you a picture before I show you the video. This is Professor Allison. He just happens to be my university supervisor. So he supervised my master's and he supervised my PhD. And uh, so I've known him since 2007 now, I think. Um, Professor Lars Allison is director of the Center for Critical and Major Incident Psychology at the University of Liverpool. He has an international reputation and a number of high-profile publications on the subject of critical incident decision-making, interrogation of high-value detainees, and risk prioritization of sexual and violent offenders. So I'm going to play you Lawrence's um, uh, video now. Welcome to my top 10 tips for um, rapport-based interviewing. Um, 10 tips here based on 25 years of basically being involved in training research um, on orbit, 
observing rapport-based interpersonal techniques. And I thought I'd share with you um, a set of uh, clips, basically, that we come across time and time again in training. And we find ourselves um, saying to students many times when we're doing training on police interviewing. So I hope they're helpful, uh, certainly intended to be helpful and usable. Um, and enjoy. So tip one is do your psychological homework. We find that an awful lot of police officers when they're preparing their interviews spend an awful lot of time on the legal procedures and quite rightly so. Um, but we always recommend that uh, you should consider who exactly it is that you're dealing with from a psychological point of view. And even that's as basic, if that's as basic as asking two really important questions. First of all, try to establish what the suspect captured personal detainee was like when they were arrested or first um, picked up. Uh, and also ask what they've been like in custody. We find over and over again when we're running training sessions, those questions aren't asked by police. So do ask those two questions. How has the person been behaving in custody and how were they when they were arrested? And not infrequently, you will find that that's useful information to take forward into the interview. Tip two. So tip two is um, what we call sell the caution. Um, we find that a lot of police officers uh, are tempted to or go through the caution in a very robotic, very mechanistic way. Uh, I've even seen police officers or heard police officers say, we'll just get through this bit and then we'll get on with the interview. Well, the caution is an important legal process. But as much as anything else, you really need to sell the idea um, to the person that you're interviewing of its worth and merits, because not only is it important, but the suspect will, will, will take it as more important if you are selling it to them as an authentic right that they have um, and are able to take advantage of. And perhaps counterintuitively, the more you um, make it clear uh, what their rights are uh, with regard to their right to silence, their permission to talk, um, the fact that everything's recorded and is on tape, and the more naturalistic and conversational you make that, uh, and the more importantly you highlight it, the better. Now, that's not to say that you that you that you deliver the caution um, tonally in the same way to everyone. Um, you know, someone that's very intelligent. You know, you may need not not to labour it as much. You need to make sure they've understood it, of course. But the key really is that it's not a robotic, mechanistic process. Find ways to deliver it so that it sounds real and that you mean it when you say it rather than that it's just a piece of admin. So the third thing to consider is what we call, why am I here? Now we've seen some officers misunderstand the notion of rapport as just having a conversation and it absolutely is not that. One of the key things that will be on a suspect's mind when you first deal with them is their concerns around whether they're innocent, all guilty, or know something or don't know anything at all. What they will want to know more than anything else is why they're there. So you need to establish quickly an answer and a statement about the evidence that you have that puts that person rather than any other person in the chair. 
And actually, if you think about it yourself, if you had been arrested for a, a murder or a sexual offence or, you know, any other crime, the first thing that's going to be at the forefront of your mind is why am I here? It will not be these kind of um, very uh, cookie cutter forms of alleged rapport building, like would you like a cup of tea or is it too warm or too hot or too cold? Those are all welfare checks and they may be important, but a really key issue is making sure that you are clear in your mind what it is that you will say in response to what is in the suspect's mind. What is it that puts me in this chair? Tip four is what we call opening line. It's surprising the amount of officers that have not fully thought through exactly what their opening line will be after they've delivered the caution. And that might be a question or a statement or whatever. But really, it's the only bit of complete control and predictability that you as an interviewer have is having control of and being able to rehearse your opening line, the very first words that come out of your mouth. And we know that that influences um, people's willingness to engage. So do spend some time thinking through and practicing with your second jockey, your second interviewer, um, or indeed someone else in the team, that very first question so that you've got it rehearsed and it can just roll off the tip of your tongue in a very clean and organized and clear way. Tip five, the power of the mouse. Don't underestimate how significant it is for you to adopt a position of humility and listening. Um, in the Orbit model, many of you will be familiar with the four different archetypes of interpersonal behaviour that we talk about that are to do with being in control, uh, being in conflict, cooperating with someone and capitulating. Uh, and what we found in our research is that the sort of safe go-to area if you are struggling as an interviewer, is that capitulate zone, which basically means dropping down to a position of listening and humility and quietness. So if you're in the middle of something which is complex or difficult, don't feel afraid to drop down into that place where you are on receive rather than send. Take your time, slow your voice down and think about what it is that you're going to say. It's much better to formulate a sensible question uh, by by considered meaningful cognition and concentration rather than quickly launch into a question which is inarticulate and not very clear. So do take the time to sit back, properly listen and consider what you're saying. That position of what we call mouse is the single most important position to be in as an interviewer. Two brains are better than one. The other thing that we've noticed is not infrequently we see a very good lead interviewer or a good lead interviewer supported by a glorified note taker instead of a second interviewer. Um, and that seems nuts to me. I mean, it's really important that if you are both trained interviewers, you rely on each other more to do the thing that you are both good at instead of having one simply taking notes. So that second jockey or second interview is there to support the lead. So there should be a degree of turn taking between you. 
Now, that often comes with training, but they, you should have a considered plan about how you're going to manage that and not simply use your second interviewer just as a note taker. It may well be that it's important for them to take notes, but given that you're both interviewers, you should both be interviewing. One of the things that can be considered here is if you feel you've got a particularly difficult person uh, to interview, or even if you're not so great at the caution, if you're that lead interviewer, then enable your second interviewer to do the caution bit. And what we sometimes advise here is that if you're in the interview, you'd go into the interview room and you'd say, my name's Lawrence Allison, I'm going to be interviewing today. Um, you're also going to be interviewed by um, David here. Um, and David's going to go through the caution and then he's going to hand back to me. But both of us will be interviewing you. The benefit of having your second jockey deal with the caution is that they can then hand back to you whilst you've been given that time to diagnose exactly the sort of person that you've got in front of you and give yourself that little bit more headspace. So it's certainly not a rule that we would advocate of always having the second jockey do that um, introductory or cautionary phase, but it is an option that you must consider. Tip seven, the right to silence and permission to talk. Now, um, of course, it's very important to clearly convey that for any suspect that you are dealing with, they have an absolute right to silence. But don't think that means that they don't also have a right to talk. So you need to make it very clear that it is up to the person that you are dealing with to make a decision about each and every question. And it is not about the solicitor's um, advice which that suspect must be taken as an instruction uh, and nor indeed is it about yours so if you have a, a very robust or um, rigorous solicitor that seems to be instructing their client to be silent you need to deal with that because that is not the case it is the case that they have a right to silence and it may well be the case that a solicitor has advised that suspect to be silent but advice is not the same as an instruction. So make it clear that it's up to the person that you are interviewing and it's not up to you as the interviewer. It's not what you want, but it's also not what the solicitor wants. It's what the, the um, individual sat in the chair that is being interviewed wants. And sometimes they may want to speak. So make that clear that that is their right to speak as well as their right to silence. Eight, don't store up the gotcha. So what we sometimes see in um, our less good interviewers is a perfectly good and acceptable free narrative phase, um, which is non-judgmental and impartial and objective and professional. And then at a certain point, it's almost like they've, um, you know, then turn the tables on the suspect and do a, what we call a gotcha, where they're saving up all the evidence until right at the end, and they haven't picked up any of the discrepancies or any of the things that weren't made clear earlier on in the interview. Now, of course, you know, you need to think about structured use of evidence and not revealing you know, every piece of evidence so that they have a chance to give a, um, a uncorrupted uh, account, if you like. But nonetheless, there are times when you should be picking up what seem to be inconsistencies or parts of the narrative that don't make sense and you question them then. And the reason that we advocate that is because if you store everything up and then kind of pull out a aha moment, 
that suspect will feel that they've been cheated. They will feel um, that they've been lied to and they will feel that they've been deceived and they may well think to themselves, well, why didn't you mention it earlier? If I hadn't made myself clearer earlier, why didn't you mention it then instead of now bring this to my table as if I've messed up or lied to you or been deceptive? So always consider when you will challenge a piece of the narrative that doesn't make sense to you. And our strong advice is to challenge it in the moment. Don't store everything up until the end. Tip nine, ATFQ. Now, I'm sure you can imagine what that stands for, but certain bits of it are ask the question. With the F, I'll leave that to your own discretion and imagination. The frustrating thing that we often see is that rapport is being uh, maintained and there's a good link between the suspect and the interviewer. Things are going really, really well. And for whatever reason, which I think is, is almost the fear of breaking that successful interaction, that an interviewer will not ask a completely obvious question. Uh, and when you are in the room and the door is open, ask the question, which might be something as obvious as who was your associate and what was their name? What was the mobile phone number of the person that you were speaking to? Um, where did you leave the um, uh, body or whatever it is? But the, the, the SIO's goals or objectives uh, must be asked. Uh, and they are particularly weird to not be asked when rapport is there. You know, people that, that have rapport with you want straight talking. They, they, you know, they want to be asked the question that you know and I know we're all here to discuss. So do make sure that you ask those questions. And there is nothing wrong with the occasional direct question. They do need to be asked. More than three in a row? Agreed. More, more than three direct questions in a row is problematic. But when you're in the room and we're talking, ask the question. And so finally, on to tip 10, which is what we call paint the picture and leave it to dry. What we've noticed when we're training is that um, most of the students that we train are um, very interesting to talk to, very conversational, very naturalistic, very engaged. And yet then when they go into the interview room, they become very sanitized, very antiseptic, very robotic, very clinical. Uh, and that's particularly weird when we're talking about things which are potentially traumatic or grave or horrific or grim. And whilst it's obviously not appropriate to kind of salaciously um, be graphic about what we're dealing with, and certainly not in a non in a judgmental way, oh, this was so horrific because such and such a thing happened. We're not suggesting that. But nonetheless, you want to be able to use more human language to describe the reality of what it is that we are there to talk about. And if that is death or sexual abuse or um, physical abuse or mental abuse or whatever it is, just paint a realistic picture of what it is that you are dealing with as a police team. And don't shy away from it. Don't sanitise it. Don't use words that soften it. Don't use words that ramp it up either. But just be real. Paint a picture and leave it to dry. And what we mean by that is that, you know, use authentic human language to describe what it is that we're all here to talk about. Um, 
But that is not to say that you are assuming or indicating that the person that you have used that language with is guilty or even necessarily has anything to do with it. But just be real about the language so that they can visualise what it is that we're here to talk about. And then let that sit and let them contemplate whether they want to answer questions about it. You have a duty to describe in an authentic and realistic way what it is that we're here to talk about and not shy away from it. And I think some interviewers are reticent, again, perhaps because of the fear of breaking down the communication. But if you think about it yourself and you were a suspect and you were involved um, in a police interview, but not involved in the case at all, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. You still want to know what it is that you are being suspected of and you want to be given it straight rather than kind of in this very circuitous or antiseptic way. So final tip, paint the picture and leave it to dry. So that was Professor Lawrence Allison for you. So fantastic session, as I promised, and um, I'm going to summarize his key learning points. These ones are easy to do. One, do your psychological homework. So find out whom you're dealing with and what they've been like. Two, sell the caution, make it genuine. And as you said, counterintuitively, the more clear you make it to the suspect that actually it's completely up to them to which extent they engage, the more likely they are to engage. Three, why am I here? So be very open and respectful and transparent. Four, prepare and practice your opening statement or opening line. That's the only bit of the interview that you've got full complete control over because the suspect hasn't really engaged much yet, hasn't really you know, had an input yet. Five, the power of the mouse. So go into receive mode rather than send mode. Um, take your time, listen, and formulate a good um, next question. Six, two brains are better than one. Seven, the right to silence and permission to talk. Eight, don't store up the gotcha. Nine, ATFQ, ask the effing question. So again, not walking on eggshells. If you can build good rapport, like Patrick said earlier on, if you build good rapport with someone, you can ask some difficult questions without breaking that rapport. And 10, paint the picture and leave it to dry. You know, be open and transparent, use human language, and but don't, you know, don't try to hide things. So um, I've got fantastic feedback here on, um, on Professor Allison's session. He's actually written a few books, believe it or not, but uh, he, did you mention that he's an MBE? Um, is it uh, like a very reverent or very excellent member of the British Empire? It's, it's a very strange title and I completely messed it up now. Apologies, Lawrence. But um, yeah, let me just put in these links here for anyone who's interested in getting one of the books. So um, we've got Orbit here. So this is actually, um, oh, this, oh, I don't have the image of, of that. It's okay. I can't show you the picture of the book, but um, never mind. It's, it's just it's just a picture. But here's the here's the link to it if you want to, to get it. And um, then there's one called Rapport, um, also very important and possibly a bit more conversational than, than the first one. And um, that is Lawrence's session. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a few courses with some of the speakers. Um, definitely, I've already told you, I'm working with Ray on um, one that we're releasing today. If you want to know what's on offer on the Police Science Doctor Academy, go to the link I've put in there just now. It's www.academy.policesciencedoctor.com. And um, there's going to be more and more courses on there over the coming few months and years. So um, you can put your details into the form and I will let you know whenever there's a new course that has come out that might be relevant to you.
Um, so again, links for anyone who's interested. So this is the short course by Professor Ray Bull. I'm putting that in here. I'm, I'm put, posting in two places simultaneously because for some reason the streaming platform is not letting me post to, um, to LinkedIn. So I'm doing that separately. Um, you can get the certificate of attendance if you want for this, because some of you might might need to prove that you are actually doing something useful at work. And um, so you can do that. You can still register for this conference that you've just watched and get the certificate. And you also get the discounted ebook link sent to you. Um, if you don't want to, um, if you don't want to be on the mailing list, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, you can still have the ebook. Um, and that's the link to get that. And please share the links of this conference very widely. So you're either watching on YouTube, Facebook, or LinkedIn, please share this link um, that you're watching right now with your colleagues. And if you think it's of any value, please let me know in the comments. I'll look through the comments, not, not now. I, it's, I, I, can't, I can't go through them. I need to concentrate on talking to you and giving you value. I'm not, I don't want to waste your time. And, um, but I'll have a look through them. Um, Professor Bull was answering very helpfully answering some questions, and there have been some great other questions um, that were answered by yourself. So it's it's great that you're supporting each other in this um, undertaking. And um, it was great to have you, and I hope I didn't forget anything. Um, there's nothing left on, on my script here that I prepared. So um, I bid you adieu. I hope you, hope you got something out of it. Um, it would be great to see you as a subscriber. If you're not already subscribing, just go to policesciencedoctor.com and leave your details in the form. There'll be more events. There'll be more training workshops. There'll be more conferences, more webinars, more courses. Um, there'll be live videos. There'll be um, you know, the police science snippets every Tuesday emails to you if you're on the list. Um, so definitely more to come. So thank you very much for being with me here today. It was fantastic having so many of you from so many places. I haven't even counted all the countries, but I'm really appreciative. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps, and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address, and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts.